The run-up to exams is an anxious time for all teens and their parents. And a certain amount of stress is not only normal, but it can be a good thing. I mean, it shows that the outcome is important. However, some young people can feel that pressure to perform so much more than others, sometimes to a really worrying extent. So just what can parents do if their child finds themselves struggling under the weight of it all? Hello, and welcome to the Study Sessions podcast. I'm Nathan, founder of The Study Buddy, and your host. In this, our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students, and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends, from overzealous and anxious students to those who are underperforming yet nonchalant. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take some comfort that you're not alone. And perhaps, more importantly, I hope that you'll take away some insights and advice that can help you to support your own team, so that they'll not just survive the exams, but thrive in the preparation. So, if you're a parent, a carer, or a teacher, be sure to subscribe. This week, I'm thrilled, as always, to have Dr. Dominique Thompson back on the show. Dom is a former university GP, a TEDx speaker, and the author of the utterly indispensable How to Grow a Grown-Up. Dom has also hosted a number of webinars for parents, teachers, and students. Dom, thanks for joining me. Actually, I don't even think it would be a proper study session season if you didn't appear at least once. So, over the last couple of weeks, I've been supporting a school with some students who are overworking, and they've been incredibly stressed about the exams and I've been trying to help them organize their time and, and bring a bit more balance into their into their days and their weeks but I've been really struck by the sheer number of students who fall into this category. Do you think that this is a growing issue for our young people? Oh yes um, Nathan what you're seeing is what has been starting to be reported probably in the press because research has been done into it over the last few years of this rising tide of perfectionism. And uh, we've talked a bit about it before, but I suspect that it's now starting to play out much more widely. So, you know, it was perhaps a bit of a niche topic until recently, but we are just seeing more and more articles. I think there was one in the BBC just last week about perfectionism, the girls in particular needing to feel like they have to be perfect in every aspect of their lives. But it isn't, of course, just the girls and it can really affect their well-being their mental health and so that's why I've got an interest in it because I've as a GP had a real interest in young people's mental health and one of the things that affects that the most is academic performance and worries about failure. Hmm. It just struck me as really odd because of the way that it sort of manifests itself on the one hand you've got students who are seemingly entirely driven and motivated to do well and you think Fantastic. I wish I wish that my children were that driven and motivated. But actually having seen it now firsthand, this idea that I'm only doing five hours of revision an evening and I just don't think it's enough seems completely absurd. Yeah. 
Absolutely. But it is coming from an external sense of pressure that they have to somehow be the best at everything. And we've lost the focus on just doing your best, you know, and that message is so important, but it's got lost somewhere along the way. And that's something that we can all, whether we're parents, teachers, supporters, GPs, whatever, is shift the message back to doing your best, not having to be the best at everything. And obviously, we can talk a bit more about that. Mm. Because it does become that element of, I guess, being overly critical about yourself and your performance based on a benchmark that you've set for yourself as well. I mean, that's, that's what you're, that's what you're saying, isn't it with this whole um, being the best aspect? Yeah. So in a way, it's sort of when we start to look at the definition of perfectionism, this feeling that everything needs to be perfect, that you set a fairly arbitrary (laughs) mark for yourself, you still feel like you failed because then you move the mark. You know, it's the same when they feel like, you know, we, we have to achieve a certain level, whether it's A's or A stars or nines or whatever it is, they'll set themselves a target and they might meet that target. And then they feel like they have to do better than that. They're still a failure, even if they meet their target. And we see it a lot in sports people as well, of doing that sort of setting themselves a limit and not being happy with it. It can manifest like that. It can manifest by actually, ironically, often being late handing in work because they never happy with the stuff that they've done. So they'll start a project, start an essay a million times, but never be happy with it. So ironically, these poor perfectionists are adding pressure to themselves by being late handing stuff in. And that's not because they haven't worked on it. It's because they're never happy with what they've done. We see it sort of come forward in lots of different ways. But this this perfectionistic attitude really starts to gnaw away at their self-esteem, their confidence. And of course, at the moment, we've, we've just focused on the sort of self-perfectionism where they set themselves targets. Unfortunately, it can also play out in that they have a huge worry about what other people think of them. So that is the other sort of side of that coin, if you like, is this feeling that they're letting other people down, even though the, the family, the parents, the teachers may never have given that impression that is part of this this pressure to succeed and and this feeling that they have to be perfect in everything. Mm. As you say, I think it's easy to dismiss the idea that it's pushy parents that are creating this impossible level of achievement that needs to be sustained. But actually, very very rarely have I have I come across a parent who's truly that pushy that they would do it almost in, in disregard of the, the child's mental health. Oh, no, my experience is it's not coming from the parents, it's coming from the society that the kids live in. They're immersed in this world, as I've talked about, as I'm sure you're aware, very, very competitive world that they live in, where everything has become a competition. So their experience of life is the constant messaging that they have to be the winner, they have to be the best. They're never allowed to just be off duty and doing stuff for fun. They can't just bake a cake. They can't just cook. They can't just do a painting. They can't just take a picture. And in fact, I'll give you an example that really (laughs) got to me last week, which was I saw a junior school newsletter where all the kids, little ones, had been asked to make a potato of some sort, like a potato character, like Mr. Potato Head, And then they had a competition. So you had to have the best potato. And I just thought, what are we doing here? 
the messaging is so tough for them. They can't just like make a funny potato. It has to be the best. And this is despite, you know, us talking about it more and being more aware of the effect of these sorts of pressures. And I think people just perhaps don't think about that enough, about the messaging that we give young people when we create everything as a competition for them. And and this goes beyond, obviously, the fact that life is competitive, that there are winners and losers. We're not talking about actually whether or not everyone should get a medal in a sports day. This is about the fact that, that you can't not compete. No, no, this isn't like we know that people will win and lose at sport and some people will do better at academia and other people are very musical. Um, everybody has natural talents. And I think that's that's absolutely fine. We've always lived with a level of competition, of course. I'm talking about having downtime, having fun, being allowed to just do stuff and mess it up and get it wrong and not be the best. Because what people perhaps don't realise is if you make something competitive and you sort of train young people to be perfectionistic, they won't try new stuff. They won't give it a go because they're so worried about failing. So studies show very clearly the more perfectionistic you are, the less likely you are to try something new and give it a go and get it wrong or find that you have a natural talent. So you miss out both ways, really. And we have to keep going back to this message that it's okay to get things wrong, that making mistakes is part of life. And the teens that I talk to and the sixth formers and stuff, they say, oh, yeah, no, we know that. But it's like they know it, but they're not prepared to to give it a go still. They're not prepared to be the one that does mess it up. And I, I understand that, you know, it can be embarrassing and, and silly and all of that. So perhaps, you know, rather than just saying, oh, it's it's okay to get stuff wrong, um, because they're still not very keen to do that. Maybe we need to look at some different messages around this overachieving and really stressful kind of need to be brilliant at everything and and talk a bit more maybe about self-compassion and what that means and and maybe we can maybe we can talk about that but I just think we need to take a different approach. Is there anything unfortunately I fear I know the answer even before I ask a question but is there anything that sort of separates out those students those young people who do suffer with this level of perfectionism more than those who don't because obviously we're all in the same environment But there are those who are responding to that external pressure, to that competitiveness differently. And I wondered, are there there characteristics? Are there tipping points? Are there great big neon signs? Um, Ideally, is is really what I'd like to hear about. Well, sure. I mean, the great big neon sign is is being female, first okay. of all. So, so they are just much more likely to struggle with this. As I said, it's not exclusively, but that's that's a big risk factor if that's what we're looking for here. But I think it's perhaps more about, you know, the environment they live in, the expectations, the role modelling from their family. You know, it can be really tough if you've got a very you know, high achieving brother or sister as well. You know, there are lots of things that happen, not that we're going to necessarily change them. I mean, that's life, isn't it? That's why I'm saying we have to sort of counter it a little bit with some of our other messaging, some of the stuff that we tell them about it. Because yes, there are certain things, you know, if you've got an anxious child, they might be more sensitive to this. You know, people with low self-esteem, this is going to undermine them even more. It can occur in all sorts of families, backgrounds, cultures. It really is popping up here and there much more everywhere. Um, What we've got to do is be alert to it, looking out for it, 
and then tackle it and challenge it and be open about it. And I think that's the thing to do. And sometimes this is, I've seen this, as I say, over the last couple of weeks in some fairly stereotypical ways. And you mentioned it earlier about how a young girl student had been working towards her marks, had been working very, very hard and had gone in hoping to get good marks, expecting to get bad marks, but actually coming out with a really good set of mock grades that anyone would be proud of. I mean, eights and a couple of nines for good measure. But absolutely, as you described before, really, really hard on herself about the fact that she clearly didn't put enough work in, that needed to do more, worried about what it meant for her future, and all of these kinds of things. And I wonder, it struck me as so peculiar that what was meant to be, I guess, sort of an aspiration, wouldn't it be great if I could get eights and nines, became a, a low tide benchmark. If I don't, then I'm failing. Yeah. Yeah. And that's classic, classic behaviour. Yeah. And it's heartbreaking. I've, I find those sorts of things really heartbreaking. And for me, that is the flag that says, OK, we're still at a relatively young age. And if we tackle that, if we intervene, you know, to use our medical term, uh, but if we can intervene in some way, we can dial that down. There is absolutely the potential to make that better. And the sorts of things we need to think about are the fact that, first of all, we all have within us a greater or lesser degree of perfectionism. So it's a personality or character trait. It's I always say it's like kindness. We've all got it to a greater or lesser degree. But what's happened is that in this generation, the younger generation in particular, because of this culture and world that they live in, lots of other pressures as well that we haven't talked about yet. But, you know, it's dialed right up. It's dialed right up and the pressure is on. So what we need to do is dial it back down again. And we can do that. There are techniques, there are ways that you can do that. But unless we talk about it and sit down calmly and say, look, you know, I've really noticed you're, you're being quite tough on yourself. What is it that's worrying you about that? What do you think is going to happen? What's your worst case scenario here? What What is it? You know, is it that they worry their family will think they're a failure or their friends or that they won't get into uni? What, what is it that's actually underlying it? So first of all, in quite a factual way, address those sorts of points. And then think about, well, okay, first of all, let's just be a little bit kinder to ourselves. How would you treat your friend? Your best friend tells you this. How would you respond to them and be like that to yourself? That's what self-compassion is. It's not self-pity. It's nothing else. It's just being kind to yourself. And for teens, that's really important to say, would you tell your best friend that they were a failure because they got eights and nines? You wouldn't. So don't do that to yourself and, you know, and have that conversation really, really gently with them, that it's about treating yourself like you would your best friend. Most of the work that's done around perfectionism, certainly there's specific CBT techniques, cognitive behavioral techniques that are done. They're all about aiming for good enough. Okay, so what would be good enough to achieve the things you need to achieve, to do the things you want to do in life, in this sport, whatever? And think about that because it's fine to say, okay, I want to be the best at, I don't know if you're, you know, a cyclist or something, but do you also have to be the best at everything else, you know, maths and science and swimming and everything else? Well, maybe if you're a triathlete, you need to be, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's about saying, okay, it's fine. Like if there's one thing you're just going to try harder and you're going to obviously do your best. I'm not saying you have to flog yourself to get there, but it, it's fine. Everyone perhaps wants to be really good at one thing, but let's be realistic. And can we, be okay with good enough 
on the level for for other things, you know. And it's those sorts of conversations that I think we need to have much more of because we do not need to be piling pressure on that generation. No. And I guess, ironically, talking about the pressure that they're piling on themselves isn't going to be helping the situation if you try to, to tackle it head on in that way. No, the, the the problem with this perfectionism and the fact that we all have it and that it's dialed up in the younger people is that it's the real worry is, is that it's linked to mental health conditions and that if we don't tackle it, it becomes more likely that they're going to have anxiety or depression or <clears throat> eating issues or worse, you know, and that's why I go on about it so much. So when I get all the big sports teachers come up to me at the end of my talks and I've talked to teachers go well you're not saying we can't be competitive in rugby and stuff I'm saying I'm not saying that at all obviously what I am saying is if you continue to drive them not them the individual teacher I just mean as a culture if we continue to make them feel like they're a failure or they're not doing enough or they've got to be perfect we're going to see even more problems with eating issues and depression and anxiety and self-harm and nobody wants that so it's about a balance it's tough, isn't it? Because it doesn't always manifest as, unlike in a rugby competition or in even baking, actually, you know, you're you're working against a competitive set. So you can still benchmark. Actually, for a lot of these young people, they, they, that competitive set is just themselves. They've, they've created these arbitrary benchmarks that they yeah. need to get to, which is, is then the really tough bit, isn't it? Oh, it's really hard because mostly it's completely, you know, misses the point. They, they If you ask them, well, what do you think everyone else is doing? How many hours a day and all of this? They all think everybody else is working harder than them. And actually, you know, they're not. They're all just driving themselves really hard. So there is a little bit of maybe useful work that could be done around what are the norms, you know, because social norms are so important for teens in particular you know is everybody else smoking is everybody else drinking is everybody else taking drugs well if they're not and you know if you rebalance some of those ideas they're then less likely to so as we're seeing for example with alcohol in that generation fewer and fewer of them are drinking a lot or drinking to excess whatever in fact one in five students at university doesn't drink at all now and a lot of that is there's some cultural shift, but also they see other people don't drink and they feel better to say no thank you themselves. And, you know, it's not just peer pressure. It's just it's just that sort of social norm stuff, isn't it? We all think that everybody else is doing more than or less than or whatever of something themselves. And so we, we drive ourselves to do the same. And I think that's really helpful if we can, you know, somewhere dial that down as well. I think that that is interesting, isn't it? The way that actually teens respond to their expectations of other people and actually how how misaligned that can be with the reality like, is is something in there to sort of help perpetuate their own sort of this this myth that they've got that they need to keep driving forward and so if they imagine that everyone else is doing it then it encourages or maybe even validates the the level of work that they're putting in Oh, yes, yes. I mean, absolutely. So it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been a lot of research and work done around that in terms of other behaviours, unhealthy behaviours. Um, mm. And the more you educate young people and say, well, actually, you know, most of your generation don't smoke or most of them don't drink too much or whatever, takes the pressure off them. They don't feel they have to keep up with that. So maybe we should be doing that with work. You know, actually, most people do mm. one and a half hours revision a night or something like that that I think would have a really impactful effect on their approach to work and their well-being. And I think that would be a really positive thing. But I don't know, actually, if anyone is doing that. I'm not I'm not sure. 
as you said, I mean, we're much better aware of some of the other issues that, that actually, I suppose, could be the manifestations of overworking, as you mentioned before, so eating disorders, and so uh, amongst others, obviously. And we've seen it with this, this body dysmorphia, where you look at yourself and, and think that you're overweight or fat, and so need to do, despite the fact that they may be seriously underweight. And I wonder whether that's the kind of thing that might be happening here as well, that actually it's that it is that impression that you're building up of yourself. I'm not working hard enough. Um, I need to do more, despite the fact that the reality is not there. And of course, that's not then helped by some sage-like yet well-meaning parent or teacher telling them you're working too hard, you need to stop, you need to... There must be a process that they need to go through to discover this for themselves. Yes, I think... We'd be a bit careful to compare it to body dysmorphia. I'm sure I understand the the comparison you're making, but obviously that is a a very specific medical condition, and that sort of you know distorted belief is is often from the way the brain is working at that time, which is a little bit different from the social norms stuff which we're talking about, which is where you believe everybody else is working really hard, so you do them all, but actually that's just based on a, a fallacy. So I think the thing about the helpful parent there, rather than just saying just work less it is to think well you know go back a step and ask them why they're working so hard and, and what is it that they're you know what is the belief that they're hanging on to here is it that they are working less than others or they've always struggled and are doing less than others is it because someone once said they'd done five hours at a weekend and they've hung on to that comment you know is to go a little bit back and, and under dig under whatever belief they're hanging on to and tackle that but just telling them to stop and to take breaks won't work because you're not tackling the underlying belief that they're building all of this on. Whereas if, I don't know, parents were able to get a more realistic view of what other kids were doing, if if other parents said, well, actually, I saw he or she did, you know, a couple of hours on Saturday afternoon, but that's it this weekend because they've been doing other stuff. You know, without naming names, it would just give a bit of a recalibration of the belief that everybody else is working really, really hard. But it doesn't help when you have these online communities. It's not about naming names, but where they they work together and they watch each other work. And, you know, it just drives this whole thing of we're all just sitting working. But is it productive? Are you actually achieving anything? Are you procrastinating? Are you doing anything creative? You know, I think what we don't have is an education system sadly, that really encourages, you know, creative thinking and interesting other ways of learning other than factual exam-based learning, which this country really does a lot of, but isn't necessarily, and that's a whole other conversation, but isn't necessarily the best way to get young people to think about stuff. So, you know, just how are you measuring your achievement? And if it's by hours and minutes, then that you're on the wrong kind of measurement scale. You need to be thinking about what you're achieving, what you're thinking about. You know, have you cracked a problem or an interesting solution or come up with a really creative thought for a project? That would be worth doing. And that doesn't need five mm. hours. Often it comes to you on a walk or on a bike ride or in the middle of the yes. night. <laughs> yes. As you say, I mean, that's quite a shift, isn't it? Certainly from um, from the people, from the students who tend to be overzealous, that moving it away from either an arbitrary time spent, which as you say, is a ridiculous metric, um, or even moving away from that, that final result, the actual um, measure of success being your, your nines or your A stars or what have you, but to start seeing it in more of a sense of effort 
um, and, and feeling, I guess, if you can get to how did you how did you feel about the fact that you cracked a difficult concept in Macbeth that you'd struggled with before? Because then, as you say, your your achievements are becoming much healthier, much more sustainable as well. Yeah, and one of the things that when people who are doing um, you know therapy techniques around it to get people to sort of you know wheel back from that top level, they say draw out a continuum of achievements. So start, you know, what's the worst case scenario, which is maybe not doing anything useful and not achieving anything all the way through to being, say, the piece of work is the very best it could ever be with every question answered and and the flow of it is perfect. Every T is crossed, every I is, you know, absolutely the top. And then work back between those two points on your little arbitrary continuum and say, well, what would be great and then what would be good and then what would be not quite good enough and and just actually think well actually it might be fine to answer most of the questions quite well uh, with some detail in some areas the middle bit might be just you know getting through most of the questions quite well but not doing any detail and no extra didn't do any extra bits you know and then down a level from that would be answering less than half the questions or writing less than half the amount I should have done or whatever. And when you sort of have a look at it like that, you can then maybe aim for the good or or medium to great, not excellent top level. And if you have time, we'll build up some of those bits, go back to one question or go back, but you chunk it down, you break it down. And that approach to all sorts of different things would be much better than just saying, I just spent five hours doing this or three hours doing that. And, you know, we just need to definitely move away from the hours as a as a measure. Hmm. And what would you do in that situation? Um, I love that idea. The continuum, I think, is, is um, fantastic and certainly something that I'll suggest with some of the students when we see them again. But what would you do in the situation where one of these perfectionist and overzealous students actually doesn't accept that anything less than perfect is good enough? For me, it always comes back to why. It's digging under that. Where is this coming from? Who is judging them at that level? And what is the worst that can happen? And it isn't going to be sorted in an instant. You're not going to have one conversation and then that's fixed, of course. course. It's, It's going to be about coming back to that and just gently shifting over time their view of it. And that's what takes time. And Dr. Emma Kerr is the person who's come up with the perfectionism continuum. And um, she works in Australia and she does work all around this if you are interested in reading more about it. But she is very clear that if you're even doing you know, a course of therapy around it or whatever, it's like anything, you're going to need several sessions. And so any parent or tutor talking about this is going to need to sort of scratch away at that and then dig underneath quite slowly and carefully because often they've built a construct around this about so many things will tie into this their self-worth their image their self-esteem you know if we take away some of those things they they believe in well what are we going to replace it with where is their self-worth going to come from where's their self-esteem going to come from you know have they put all their eggs in their academic basket or can they see that actually they're a really great friend or a brilliant brother or sister or a fantastic team member you know on the hockey team or whatever it is that actually the academic side of life is actually a really small part of life. And I think 
it's giving people self-worth and self-belief in other ways. You know, what are they great at that doesn't get measured in time? Mm, again, love that. That sort of questioning where the validation comes from, self-validation comes from. Because as you mentioned very early on, that perfectionists in one area, if it were academic and revision, tend to be perfectionist, I suspect, in, in other areas as well. Yeah. So looking at those areas that aren't typically measured or competitive i'm not the not the most friendliest friend <laughs> those <laughs> kinds of things but if you can find something where people actually do validate your worth that actually you can you can hold on to that well yeah and can i just say sorry because that is so important what you've just said there because the problem is if they do fail academically and whether that's in their eyes or ours if all of it is all the academic eggs in one basket it can lead to quite negative thinking. I don't want to get too dramatic here, but if they don't see their worth and they're measuring it all by academic success, that's when difficult and sometimes tragic things happen. So we have to, all of us, encourage people to see themselves as more than just their grades. So sorry, I just wanted to say that. No, no, that's worth worth stating, um, definitely. Mm. Because as you say, we don't want to become maudlin, but actually we do also need to be aware that even if these are extremes, they're extremes that absolutely no one wants to um, wants to go through or would wish on anybody else. Thinking about the continuum, I was wondering whether that can be blended with the um, the kindness approach um, that you talked about and that we've heard before from Shuru Izadi only a couple of episodes ago, actually. And actually to do this continuum, not based on themselves, perhaps, but actually what would perfect look like for, oh no, what would the very best be like? I, mm. I, I, I instantly regret my choice of terminology. <laughs> <It's fine. laughs> what would, yeah, yeah, what would okay. the very best look like yeah. in this piece of work and for someone else? What would good enough look like for them? So if they can take themselves out of that equation, I wonder whether that would help to contextualise it a bit more and sort of give them a, a, a way of talking about it that's not, I suppose, admitting defeat from their own perspective. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I, I'm i absolutely all for getting them to see life through the eyes of others. And teens and young people can be really good at doing that for looking after their friends. They're amazing sometimes at looking after their friends. But it takes effort. It takes time. They always find some reason why. Well, yes, but it's different for me. You know, you 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 would have to again. You would have to work with mm. that. But I think it's a brilliant technique because it's so self-explanatory. They can see that. They totally get what you're saying. What you'll come up against is the yeah, but they do it da 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 differently, or they got this, or whatever. You know. So it's about working with that, not to get frustrated, because to you it will seem obvious as the parent or teacher that. Of course, that young person in front of you has their value and doesn't need to be the best at everything, but they will always find some reason. Mm. <laughs> so it's so important to just work with it. But I think it's a great technique because it's anyone can do that. Anyone can sit with them and just work through that. Because as you said, that the whole teen approach to the, well, fine, well, actually, I'm not even sure it's exclusively teen. I think we all did. I mean, the reason that doesn't apply to me is because yeah. <laughs> it can also be a challenge when you're looking at reshaping those social norms and how many hours are spent. Well, it's different for the universe because they don't want to achieve what I want to achieve. So finding, I guess, a comparable set of people, um, of someone who has similar ambitions or similar likes and interests might be quite helpful as well, presuming they're not all falling in the same overzealous um, set. 
Yes. And you could add into that, couldn't you? You could start that reflective process. And then another sort of additional technique would then be to get them to talk to people who they trust, who are adults around them, but not necessarily like mum or dad or, you know, find another trusted adult and get their perspective so that they gather different prisms through which they look at this, you know, because they will have their very specific narrow view. And then there'll be mum and dad, maybe or family saying, no, no, you don't need to do all this. You know, it's okay. We're happy with it. And they'll be like, no, you don't understand. (laughs) So talk to other people, talk to other people, you know, aunties, uncles, teachers, counsellors, best friends, mum or dad, you know, and say, just weave it into conversation or get that person to chat with them about it. And just you know, sometimes they need to build up the evidence that says, actually, what you're doing is just fine. You don't need to be doing more than whatever it is, you know, working till you understand this problem or coming up with a creative idea for your essay. You don't then need to spend five hours rewriting it and rewriting it, you know, and and gathering trusted adult opinions may be part of the process. Mm. Again, Love that idea. That sort of building that bank of mm. people that they can sort of bounce ideas off, and and I guess that must help with uh, with not feeling isolated. Which certainly from my limited experience has been something that I've observed in these students is that they can feel like it's them against the world, despite anyone's best intentions. And I'm absolutely certain that the their family life is a is a loving and warm environment. But for some reason, they they separated that out from from what it is that they want to achieve. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's really quite common, this feeling that you're all on your own fighting this this battle and that nobody else understands what it's like. And I guess that comes from that transition time through your teens when you are separating from your family. So biologically, you know, your brain is changing and you're moving towards your peers, but you haven't necessarily found the really secure peer environment that you'll have in your future. So you are in a bit of a transitional state in terms of, you know, a bit like a pinball moving around trying to find where you're going to settle, even though your family might be really supportive, they're the safe harbour you can go back to as a teen, you don't necessarily hold it that way in your head. I mean, hopefully you do, but it is it is hard to say they're all going through this in so many different, you know, emotional ways, and they're having their own experience of it. So I think that is understandable. So anything we can do to, as you say, build up this network of support around them where they're not on their own, they're not isolated, I think that's absolutely vital. Yeah. And also, don't it doesn't strike me that that's a port of last reserve. It's not. It's not something that you need to wait to do when things look like they're going wrong. I mean, that's the kind of thing that could be built up in time. No. And I'm minded back to a student uh, who was a, a boy, and I know that, as you say, predominantly this is a trait that we'd find in in teen girls. But actually, the, the boy looked like a fully functioning overachiever, if you like. What struck me was when you were talking a moment ago about how if all of the academic eggs are in one basket, the consequences can be dire. And so for him, actually, his parents were telling him that he he thinks they they think he's doing too much work. And he disagreed. And as I say, lovely chap, there was nothing anxious about him or nervous. He matter of fact, he said, but I'm not. I'm, I'm only getting in five hours. I just need to do more. So as you say, actually having... Having that circumstance when you would look at him and think, well, maybe it's all right that he's doing this. Maybe it's okay that he's putting that much pressure on him because he's still playing rugby and rowing and whatever else it was that he was doing. But actually, 
the implications of something going wrong could be catastrophic, which is where I guess having more of these supports in place early on is going to be so much more useful. Yeah, I mean, I'm just... I worry so much about a generation that values themselves so much on academic achievement. It is something that we do all need to be aware of and tackling. And when I talk to the sixth formers and the young people themselves, what I try to talk about, because this often ties in, it's not the same, but it's it often ties into their feeling of not knowing what they want to do with their life or not being sure this, you know, worry about maybe a lack of purpose or something like that. So all of this, I try to say to them, think of this time in your life and the next few years as you building a platform from which you will launch yourself into the world. You're putting the building blocks in place and it's going to be a launch pad, but it is not the final decision. So whatever GCSEs or A-levels or IB or BTEC that you choose, or if you go to university, pick things that you're interested in, that you're engaged with, that you feel a genuine connection with or interest in if you're going to do them. Because this this feeling that this is it, the decision I make at every single stage, that's it. There's no going back. I can't make, you know, is just rubbish. And we need to be really clear about that because they can feel like it's a catastrophic decision that they're making if they make the wrong one, but they don't know what the wrong one is. And I keep just repeating to them, you are building your launch pad. It is a broad base from where you'll go. And you don't know, you might end up doing something completely unrelated to what you're doing now that you couldn't do at school or couldn't learn, you know, specifically here or at university. You just don't know. So I'm really keen that we all try to talk about this broad base. It's not all about grades. It's not all about being the best at rugby or hockey. It's good to have lots of different interests. You know, we kind of know it, but it's like they're not living it. So we need to reiterate it as much as possible. And that also slightly addresses the kind of, I don't know what I want to do with my life purpose thing, because I used to see that all the time. Students come and see me absolutely at rock bottom, not knowing, I don't know what to do with my life. It's hopeless. I'm hopeless. You know, um, not going to achieve anything. You know, there's this real feeling of being lost in the world. And I'm not sure why they feel it so strongly, where it comes from. But certainly we need to address it and talk about it before they get to that stage. Because mm. there is a worry, isn't there, that that they'll look around and people pretend that they've got it all together. There's this whitewash, insta-perfection or otherwise, that, that makes it look like everyone else has got a plan. I mean, I'm very comfortably in my mid-40s and I'm still not sure I've, I've got an exact plan, <laughs> a, a handle on where it is that I really want to end up. No. I'm really struck with something we talked about in our, I was going to say in our very first episode, but actually it was in the very first episode. <laughs> and that was where I think something that parents can do here, and, and I'll leave you to explain it a bit more, is to share those ex- times when things didn't go to according to plan for themselves, because that can help, can't it, to uh, sort of oh model yes, that, yes. Yeah. Well, life is wiggly, which is um what I what I always <laughs> think of at the moment. I see. <laughs> yes, I still say it, but um I think we've seen it more in the last two years <laughs> than we ever expected. <laughs> 
roller-coaster. Absolute roller-coaster. Oh, life certainly <laughs> has been wiggly. But my point, I guess, there was about sharing our failures and that it's absolutely fine to talk about stuff that hasn't worked out because we sort of either forget to do it or we don't want to bother them with that stuff or we think, oh, they won't be interested. And the thing is, even if we tell them stuff and they're just sort of absorbing it and not necessarily responding or you just get a grunt, the point is they're there. They've they've sort of heard it and it's kind of gone in and, and they're more aware then that, you know, sometimes you didn't get the job you wanted or you didn't go to the first university you chose or you didn't, you know, get that paper accepted or whatever it is, you know, job promotion. We sort of forget sometimes just to share that and and actually more everyday stuff as well. But, you know, might be that we failed our driving test seven times. I mean, it's it's about making all that stuff normal and part of life. And we don't need to protect them from it. They need to know that that stuff happens and that therefore it's not such a big deal if things don't go okay for them. I gave this talk to the students, uh, the sixth form of a school about two weeks ago. And I, having done all of my best, you know, it doesn't matter. It's okay. You don't all have to be right at the end. Any questions and only one hand went up and he said, but what if I fail all my exams? <laughs> I just thought... Okay, I'll start again. <laughs> Having just spent 45 minutes saying, it's okay, we make mistakes. Anyway, so we talked about how we can take time to think about what we want to do with our life, but that we don't need to know right now. And we are building a springboard. <laughs> As always, I think that was absolutely indispensable advice from Dom. As a dad of a procrastinating son, I've quite often made light of the idea that having an overzealous teen is the stuff of mythology. But if your child is prone to worry about their grades, be overly self-critical, or perhaps not know when to switch off, it can be a real worry. And in truth, it's probably more of a worry for us parents than if you're parenting a lazy or a procrastinating one who you don't think is going to fulfil their potential. And as Dom pointed out, it's right that we should be aware and conscious of how we can help and to try to do things that can support them. It's been a real eye-opener for me to see students who are putting so much pressure on themselves. As an adult, I think it's easy to look at this and see it as a misplaced significance on what these exams mean to them, but that doesn't make it any less real. For teens in any year, this is a a really stressful period. It's often the first serious set of public exams that they will have been through. And when you add to that the disruption that the last couple of years have given them, we have a very particular set of circumstances that are going to make this exam period especially difficult for some. For some of those students, this pressure will have been building for a while. It's not an overnight thing, as we heard from Dom. And in most cases, it will have started undetected. You remember Dom describing that perhaps this could have been seen in the excess time that was spent on some seemingly innocuous piece of homework and then not being satisfied until it was perfect. This can also be seen then later by not being happy with any score that's not the best in the class, even if you'd think that you should be doing cartwheels because of them. It can be so hard to tackle this by reference to what other students are doing. As Dom said, it becomes very easy for our young people to dismiss any kind of rationalisation or comparison because they just think it's not the same for them. But it is especially important that we do what we can to try to challenge these norms that they've built up. 
Dom talked through some particularly great approaches that we can easily and readily try with our own teams. I think the one that really struck me in particular was this idea of that continuum of achievement. So at the upper end, you have what best looks like. At the bottom end is not good enough. But that description of what just good enough looks like in the middle, I think, could be so powerful. This, as Dom said, and all of the approaches actually are not silver bullets. Heartbreakingly, there's no magic formula. But this is a process, and it's all that important shifting of what the teens see as necessary and validating. Of course, the most important parenting role that we can offer, I believe, is to make it known beyond a shadow of a doubt that our love and support are not linked in any way to their achievements. This might seem uncharacteristically sappy for me, but I really do think it's so important. Especially as Dom pointed out that it's all about the effort that they should be putting in to do their best, not chase some idea that they have to be the best. My thanks to Dom for coming on the show again and chatting with me and sharing so generously. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share how things are going, or perhaps just chat about something that's on your mind, please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways that you can support your own young person to fulfil their potential through revision and find balance in their time, then why not head over to the Study Buddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information on our innovative time management and study organising approach. And you'll also find a blog that's packed full of useful articles, hints and tips. To find out more, make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com.